0: And right now in 2023, I will say, as someone that watches the southeastern Michigan dining scene as a whole very closely, nothing surprises me as far as closures. Anywhere, Any restaurant could close, whether it's busy or it's 50 years old or it opened six months ago. I'm not surprised by any closings these days.
1: Okay, ready?
2: This is it. This is the show. What's With the Pineapple, a brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association.
1: Pineapples don't grow in Michigan.
2: No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests.
1: What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on
2: in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right?
1: (laughs) All right, Justin, we're back. Yes. Yes, we're back. We're back. Um, It's 24 hours right now before St. Patrick's Day. And so when this comes out, it either is St. Patrick's Day or St. Patrick's was yesterday. More importantly, March Madness starts today as well.
2: It's literally, it is 1040. I have not submitted a bracket yet. I got some ideas in the head. Crazy year, I think. It feels like an anyone can win kind of a year. Um, So, you know, that's the the year. You zag and go chalk. You go chalk
1: I don't know what that means
2: That means you pick more winners than upsets Because assume oh. that because anyone could win That more upsets would happen No, go chalk, go the other way, zag so it's, Inefficiency in the market
1: So it's reverse, reverse psychology Yeah Huh, okay yeah. Well, we better wrap this podcast quickly So you can fill out your, po-
2: your Yeah, it's gonna bracket. be tight I think I gotta get it in before noon And we're easily going till 11.35, 11.40 here So let's get to it
1: All right. Jumping into current events, Pineapple Express? Absolutely. Okay. So the White House is planning for electric vehicle chargers at restaurants. This was a couple weeks ago. They announced that they want to. the White House wants to install 100,000 electric vehicle charging stations through public-private partnerships with restaurants. This is part of President Biden's goal to reduce the number of gas-powered passenger vehicles by 2030. So, what is your take on how the industry can participate in this shift across the country? Really?
2: Yeah, the shift's coming, and it feels like it's a it's a post partisan issue at this point, right? That it is not a gas powered Republicans versus EV Democrats, and this is I think I think this is getting pretty close to the consensus of ten fifteen years from now. It's going to be a slow build out, but a greater portion of uh, vehicles overall are going to fit this description, and there isn't enough infrastructure. And I think our industry is is the obvious point for infrastructure that needs to happen. If you're at a hotel and you're driving and staying overnight, you're clearly going to need the ability to charge. And not enough hotels have that capacity right now. Same with restaurants. If you're going to be in and dining for two hours, why not use that opportunity to be charging while you're there? It's a great opportunity for our industry to be providing that service. So we are in the nascent stage here and maybe speaking too early on on what how how big our role as an association can be. But I think we need to be finding partners with companies that can help our industry, especially the smaller independents that are going to need this kind of facilitation, guide them through the process of how to do it, but how to maximize all of the tax credits that are out there, because there are a lot of them, uh, and I don't even pretend to know all of them. But there are federal, there are national, or excuse me, there are state, and in some localities, there are specific local benefits that you can tap into. So I think it's incumbent on us, and we are starting to do this work of making sure we can get be an access point uh, for our members to understand how to to build this out at their at their at their hotel at their restaurant, and do so cheap. Right, that have up to ninety percent of 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 that cost covered. So stay tuned. I think this is a discussion we're all going to be having in 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 the subsequent years. But we're we're doing our work right now, our due diligence to make sure we can be of value.
1: Yeah, I think you're seeing a lot of subways, larger chains, Taco Bell's announcing that they're implementing these at their places, but no independence yet. So.
2: We sometimes frequent the South Lansing Meyer. That's not too far from our house, and they have a couple Tesla-specific branded charging stations on the far end of the parking structure. And I'm just like, this is not, this is not quite the demo <laughs> yeah. for the South Lansing Meyer. I don't see them being used too often yet, but those could be used much more efficiently at plenty of our restaurants. So we need to build this. We need to build this infrastructure out. Uh, but we I think, for this industry, we're still in the nascent stage.
1: Is that the Meyer with the giraffe, or no?
2: No, that's the West Side.
1: Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Anyway, moving on. The Starbucks CEO, we have a couple Starbucks stories on this outline today.
2: Two Starbucks stories. One's
1: a little lighter, much lighter. One's a little heavier. So the Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz, is being called to testify before a U.S. Senate committee hearing on unions and organized labor.
2: Let's get ready to rumble. This is what I think a lot of people on both sides have been waiting for, frankly. This will be an interesting show. So, so put a, clear your calendar. March 29th. March 29th. The, the HELP Committee, that is the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate, uh, will have testimony from one Howard Schultz, who has been pretty outspoken. From his perspective, Starbucks has always been at the forefront of uh, employee benefits and treating their employees right. I think there's a certain criticism that, that stems from a combination of the app, the development of their app and what that meant for the workforce and, and how employees were treated through COVID that would suggest that there's, there's, there's a challenge there, that Mr. Schultz's perspective is not 100% accurate and thus rose uh, the beginnings of, of what has now turned into 290 Starbucks locations that have voted to unionize. And and that is going to be a fascinating discussion. Bernie Sanders on one side, uh, we all know where Bernie's coming from, <laughs> uh, and Howard Schultz on the other. And and I think it's it will be really instructive of where we think labor organizing is in the industry right now, and where frankly it might be going. Because I think it's I think it's a fascinating one for this industry. We at the association spent a lot of time trying to talk about making this industry more inviting for those who want to have a a real career, creating education, creating training, creating a ladder that suggests it's a good idea to have a career. That is still a portion of the workforce in this industry because this industry is always going to have a portion of its industry that that they're attracted to this industry because it is flexible and meets their needs for a transient period in their life. Maybe it's as early as high school, maybe it's while they're in college or grad school or a second job whether they're just getting started in, in in another career. That is a that's always going to be a part of this industry, and whether or not that should be organized can be organized. Is there interest in being organized from that large portion of this workforce? Is to me fascinating, and, and going forward, I think will be really telling. And I think this conversation. At the Senate Health Committee is going to be uh, I think really telling of, of where this where you might see this going uh, in the coming years. something tells me we'll hit on this topic again when we talk about right to work. But yeah I think again, book March 29th hold it this is this is the real March madness the, the the NCAA tournament is great. This is probably going to be better. So
1: maybe we can get brackets involved in some way for this.
2: and and Joe, let's see if we can book Howard Schultz. can we get Howard maybe after? He can go directly from speaking to the Senate committee and then maybe coming on What's with a Pineapple, and we'll hear his perspective at that point in time. So stay tuned, listeners. I think that may be in the offing.
1: Joe, both our producer and our talent booker.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Book it, Joe. All
1: right. Yeah. So March 29th, mark your calendars. So... Continuing when we bring Mr. Schultz onto to this podcast in a couple weeks here. Um, Starbucks also announced this is such a horrible transition, but it garnered a lot of attention on Twitter. They're infusing olive oil into their drinks, inspired by what this is what they do in Italy, apparently. and they are infusing this. It just it got a lot of attention because people were basically like WTF, why are we doing this? It sounds heavy and disgusting to me. But apparently there's health benefits associated with it to take a spoonful of spoonful of olive oil every day. So they're infusing it into their drinks.
2: Yeah, no, no doubt. The health benefits are there. But oleato latte with oat milk and olive oil just isn't hitting it for me. Let me just pull back, though. This is the classic you and me combo, right? All embodied within the brand Starbucks. Me hitting on the pretty dry, but, but fascination <laughs> with the labor politics side of our industry, uh, the economic side, uh, and, and then and so we we hit on on the Howard Schultz Senate committee testimony, and same company, we come right back. I'm surprised you didn't have something here on Taco on, Bell, on Taco Bell yet, but the the olive oil side. But this is, I mean, listen, it, it did draw a lot of. I remember seeing this for a couple days in a row of whether this was going to sell or not. I get the health benefits side, but man, it just as a texture, feels like it's not going to be something I want to drink.
1: Well, when we get Howard on the podcast, we'll bring some in. We'll do a live taste testing in front of him. Apparently, he pushed this specifically and is very passionate about it.
2: I might be more inclined to just take a spoonful of olive oil than mixing it in with a, a, a coffee drink because I don't. We'll see. I don't know what I don't know. I haven't had one.
1: Yeah, just do shots of it or something. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, some might say that I'm the more fun counterpart of this podcast <laughs> after you subtly insulted me there.
2: No, I think I was implying that by far you're the more fun and interesting member. I'm, I'm here for the hard uh, the hard stuff but I will I will definitely give a try of this. I don't anticipate frankly liking an olive oil infused uh, latte but we'll we'll give it a run.
1: I don't think I think it's starting in California as so many things do. <laughs> Um, For better or worse. (laughs) Will make its way to Michigan eventually. Okay, so a couple uh, national data things. So the AHLA put out some data that hotels are planned to surpass pre-pandemic demand in 2023. And uh, local tax revenue generated from hotels is expected to surge. Um, Michigan is in the top 10 of those states, projected to have the highest gross increase for state and local tax revenue in 2023.
2: I think we talked about this before on this podcast we had the Michigan had the largest pipeline when the pandemic hit so there was a lot of development started about to start had started but hadn't been completed of any state in the country when the pandemic hit which was terrifying for for where we were going to be and what what level of development we might find ourselves in uh, in the state of Michigan because we are I still think we I mean I, I was just talking to my colleague from Oregon the other day Oregon is a state beautiful state. Plenty of ocean, coastline. I'd still take Michigan over Oregon any day of the week.
1: Shots fired.
2: Shots fired, Jason Brandt, but he knows this. <laughs> there are a state that has a population that's just slightly more than half of what we have in Michigan. They have more than 1,000 more hotel locations in Oregon than Michigan. So to me, we are still, uh, th- And you, we, we talk Pure Michigan a lot. We're clearly not near where we could get to with, with effective and, and sustained advertising to bring more tourism to Michigan, those for recreation, those for business, than where we are right now. If, if Oregon, again, a state with half the population, can have over a thousand more hotels operating in, in its state than Michigan, we, we should have that kind of growth and we should have sustained growth from where we are right now. Not because the, the population of Michigan is growing. It's pretty static and has been for a long time. Right. But there should be more people taking advantage of the largest freshwater coastline in the world. Get to Michigan, people.
1: You're saying people coming in and traveling and visiting our state, yes. as Pure Michigan suggests.
2: So we're talking about the growth of, of hotel tax revenue that I'm, I'm suggesting that's that's justified and, and doesn't surprise me. And there's a much higher ceiling than we are right now, but it's going to take some proper investment. It's going to take a realization that we aren't at a ceiling of what's, what the potential for Michigan travel and tourism is, and that we need to invest strategically to get where I think a, a much higher ceiling could be.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that.
2: Yeah, don't make me go down the water route. We could have a twenty-minute conversation now about the fact that we have all this fresh water and people are struggling to have any in the Southwest. Now, can we? You want to go? You want to go down the road of, of people wanting to the the suggestion we could just drain Lake Michigan and move it over to Arizona uh, as somehow a, a, a plausible policy solution to the lack of water? You know, insulting. How tremendously insulting that is to Michigan. How about you just move to Michigan, enjoy yeah. everything we've got here. All nine seasons that we bring.
1: <laughs> I think we're in third winter right now.
2: Yep. Yep. It was a dry early winter, but it's been a very, very wet late winter. Yeah. So this is what I'm saying though. I mean that, that level of fresh water is such an asset that that people should and need to be experiencing positively.
1: And people need to know about it.
2: And they and, need a great hotel to stay at while they're here.
1: Great points. Pure Michigan should continue to be funded. That's what I'm hearing.
2: Maybe, maybe Howard Saltz will talk to him about investing in Michigan when he's on the pod. Yeah. Perfect.
1: Next week. Two weeks from now.
2: Two weeks from now. Yeah, give him at least two weeks, Joe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think he's stepping down like next month, so we better get, get like, that like done. In
2: three, like three days after. Yeah. yeah. At the end of yeah. March, he is done.
1: He's going to do this. That's
2: why he's going to have time to join us in April.
1: Yeah. And he's just going to go out guns blazing at this hearing. Yep. It's going to be great. Okay. Anything else you wanted to hit on for Pineapple Express before we go on to pineapple plaudits?
2: No, let's keep moving. Hit the plaudits.
1: The Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Fund, commonly referred to as the MRL Fund, is your association's premier benefit offering. This successful self-insured program was established in 1992 to help members control their long-term workers' compensation costs. Owned and operated by its members, the MRL Fund offers the same protection as an insurance company, but with many unique benefits and savings not available elsewhere. With industry specific claims management and lower expenses, the fund passes the savings back to its members. The MRL fund has returned $107 million back to its members since its inception, with over $7.4 million returned in 2023. This represents a 48% average return back, which is a substantial savings. The MRL Fund offers its members numerous loss prevention resources and loss control programs that are specific to the hospitality industry. This training has a strong focus on creating a safety, culture in the workplace by educating owners and supervisors on ways to prevent accidents and keep their employees free of injury. For most members, the substantial savings is the primary reason why they insure with the MRL Fund. It has proven to dramatically reduce the overall costs of their workers' compensation insurance year after year. The MRL Fund is available to both large and small hospitality operators in Michigan. For more information, contact the MRL Fund at 800-686-6640 or visit mrlfund.org. All right, we have a few things on the list here, some I've added in the last few hours. So Ford's Garage opened a Novi location a couple weeks ago.
2: I attended the special soft opening, and that team... Did a fantastic job. The food's great. Uh, if you are in Novi, if you are maybe attending a convention at the uh, Suburban Collection Showplace, which mm. is very near nearby, uh, hit the Ford's Garage. It's doing well. Team's doing well. Good job to by Billy Downs.
1: Yeah, the inside looks fun, and I actually think I saw our today's guest do coverage on that soft opening as well. So, a couple more things. Buddy's Pizza opened a new Grand Rapids location. It's their third in West Michigan. Buddy's Pizza just continuing to grow. And that hit my inbox. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Also, a previous guest on this podcast. And lastly, uh, Turtle Creek Casino. They hosted, I believe, last week a reopening of their renovated uh, 137 rooms that they spent $10 million on. Have you ever been there? Oh, yeah. It's a nice casino. It's, it's a nice casino. It's probably my top three.
2: I didn't realize you were so into casinos.
1: I'm not, but the people in my life are. <laughs> <laughs> Firekeepers is a good one.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Yeah, but Turtle Creek's fun. They they are patient with you and teaching you how to play blackjack. Oh, because they're slower sometimes. So, anyway, moving on into for Fork's sake, the G-A's. No, I'm not
2: done. We're not done. We got. Oh, I got some stuff.
1: Okay, you didn't share that with me. Blodets.
2: Yeah, it's it's a new one. So I also went to Robert Song. Owns Maru Sushi, new board yes. member of the association, Maru Sushi, the sushi choice of the Winslow family. It fantastic uh dinner the other night for my daughter's tenth birthday at Maru. Very we nice. Also, Robert is getting into the bubble tea craze.
1: Oh, and we talked about that on this podcast. Yeah. Your kids are very They're into obsessed. bubble tea. So,
2: he opened uh, what's called Gong Cha. He has the, I believe, statewide franchise rights to this place. It's right next to the Mara Sushi in East Lansing. And it is, they have 5,000 different types of bubble teas. I don't fully understand all of them.
1: Yeah. Is this on Lake Lansing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I drove by last night, and we were talking about that.
2: Uh, I didn't realize what it was. Wednesday, so they are open uh, officially.
1: Next Wednesday?
2: No, no. Oh. As in right now. Oh. Yeah. Kids loved it. There's a million different options to go with. It's a, Some of it's insane to me. I mean, some of it's literally putting pudding, pudding, oh. pudding. pudding uh into into a tea it like there's a creme brulee version this is what my my wife got and they, they literally will sear it with the with the torch at the top wow to get the the creme brulee uh feel it was i just got a plain green tea
1: are they doing anything with olive oil
2: <laughs> not yet i think there's opportunity for growth i've heard uh but it's good though and the kids love it and now they want to go back so uh he may be onto something here with uh with gongshaw
1: yeah that's gonna hit your budget probably quite a bit oh yeah Um, it's funny because we were talking about why would they open that right next to a sushi place and that all makes sense now there you
2: go
1: (laughs) Um, okay anything else you had on your list no i think plaudits
2: i think we hit a lot of plaudits
1: that was a good one meet mabel from byod she is the future of profitability and operational excellence With over 400 APIs and a complete suite of digital operational tools, Mabel integrates and improves your tech stack to help your team make better decisions in real time. Your MRLA membership gives you discounted pricing, a free 60-day trial, and white glove onboarding. Learn more at byod.ai. All right. For Fork's sake, government affairs segment. There's been a lot happening and moving pretty quickly by all standards.
2: Very busy. Very fast-moving start to 2023. The Democrats not messing around. They've got a, a pent-up agenda, uh, and they're going to move it, and they have demonstrated that. Listen, are we, I think we had said in January, maybe it was December, as we were forecasting the year, that it was going to take a while to build up the sort of expertise in, in and what, what governing was just going to be like. When, when you aren't doing it, it takes a little while to learn the process, the do's, the don'ts, the when to go fast, when to go slow. And they're just charging full ahead with with narrow majorities in both the House and the Senate and, and getting a lot of stuff done quickly. So let's some of these things, frankly, we're supportive of and, and working with and collaborating with Democrats on frequently at the association. So, yeah, let's hit some of the highlights real quick. Uh, the Cocktails to Go Sunset is, is one that we've been tracking for a while. Frustrated we didn't get it done. Uh, it's bipartisan support. Uh, And and it just didn't get it done before they decided they were just done doing legislation in 2022. So it's been reintroduced. Senator Mallory Mallory McMorrow out of Royal Oak is the Senate sponsor. They had a hearing last week. Great restaurant member. Whiskey Taco Foxtrot out of Clawson came in, testified, did a great job talking about the value of cocktails to go how it got them through COVID and how it's just a big part of their business model right now. Like so many other things, I think I think it's just the expectation of consumers now uh, and that we really have the safety protocols down to make this work. So great, great hearing last week that is expected to move literally today out of a Senate committee. And we're going to keep pushing. We'd love to see this move out of the Senate altogether before they break uh, a little bit later this month in March. because. There hasn't been much pushback. I think people recognize this has been helpful for the industry. It's it's meeting consumer demand where it is. And it's also bracketing the safety protocols where it needs to be to make sure that alcohol isn't getting into the hands of of people it shouldn't. So I expect to see this continue to move. But thanks to Senator McMorrow for introducing and, and moving that forward. Moving this week quickly also and, and defying uh, my expectations on a timeline. I think maybe we even talked about this. Right to work is going to be repealed uh it, ca- it is it is out of the senate it was out of the house last week out of the senate this week the same goes for prevailing wage prevailing wage that's a specific wage standard uh and, and often means usually means uh union-based labor for all government-related projects um including schools So those two things together in one moving right to work is a tough one. It's, you know, we were on a coalition to keep right to work. It's not the number one issue to this industry specifically because not a large portion of this industry is organized. So it doesn't directly affect a whole lot of this industry. But as we've said for the last year and a half, we've never seen so much organizing activity around this industry as we are seeing right now. And as we talked earlier in this podcast, I think some of the interesting things for how organized labor impacts this industry is a lot of, we're professionalizing the workforce, uh, but there's still a, a large part of this industry, restaurant, hotel alike, where people are here in a transient nature. It's not their forever job. They're working in high school. They're working in college, maybe their early twenties before moving on to do something else. And they like that flexibility. Do those people want no choice whatsoever. If 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 fifty percent choose to organize a location, it's it's going to be interesting the dynamics. If actually labor organizing continues to be a trend that happens in this industry, but as of today in twenty twenty three, it's a very very small portion of of the industry uh, in, in restaurants. A little higher in hotels, but even there, it's it's not overwhelming.
1: Well, and how could that impact the workforce issues if it's not something our industry wants to participate in? But that trend continues. We're, already, we're still having workforce issues. We're still 30,000 jobs down in this industry. So, that could have a negative impact there as well, correct?
2: Big month last month of hiring, frankly, and a positive side for this industry down to only 25,000 jobs shy of where we were pre-pandemic. A lot of other industries are well above their previous pandemic highs. Uh, this is the this is one of the very few industries still struggling to get back to where it was in terms of total workforce. But at least you're seeing that that trend continue. I think the more concerning thing is outside of the the large autos, when people come and and do site visits and look and make large investments, uh, right to work state is is a component there an important component so you know we as an industry and the hotel and the and the restaurant side are are reliant on a on a dynamic economy in michigan so we need growth we need we need large developments so that that, that it would create more restaurant growth more hotel growth and if this means some of these projects are going to be diverted elsewhere, then that's concerning to us as an industry. I think that's a bigger, you know, what are the outside externalities if it's not impacting us directly that, that may impact, it may, it may be on that economic growth side. You know, I don't want to say definitively that that is what's going to happen, but for a lot of people looking to develop, that's a big component. And so to not have that right to work designation will put us at a disadvantage for some of these larger firms looking to build, uh, where you have other states that border, michigan that that are still right to work states
1: and like you said earlier utilizing the fresh coastline and building up that all ties in
2: unmet potential i will continue to hammer on this
1: triggering Uh, you again (laughs) (laughs) um okay so where does right to work i mean this could change at any time since the recording but where does it stand right now is it
2: through the senate on the way to the governor Okay. um i do not believe uh, immediate effect has been granted so it will not go into effect until after the 90 days after the legislature adjourned. so unless the legislature does something quirky like adjourning for the year substantially early what you'd be looking at is implementation in sometime in early 2025 20, oh okay yeah got it Right. right two year two year legislative session and then 90 days after they they adjourn for that session what you could keep your eye on is whether or not there's going to be an attempt, and it would be expensive, to put a right to work back on a, on the ballot in a constitutional format in 2024. That would probably be a 20 million dollar uh, yeah. investment to to try to to do and to do successfully to keep Michigan a right to work state. Uh, so stay tuned. We I don't know the answer of whether or not that that investment is worthwhile and and whether groups are 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 thinking seriously about doing that
1: interesting okay we'll keep everyone updated going in more local we've talked a little bit I think about the the gas ban in Ann Arbor we've been doing a lot of work on that frankly what is the status I think we might have covered it in that first episode when the audio had some issues so maybe a, a recap would be helpful too for listeners
2: yeah just real briefly it's, it's what you think it is it is a ban on natural gas on, on future developments And this would be for the city of Ann Arbor, right? Is the city of Ann Arbor proper looking to pursue a a ban on this? So, new restaurants, new hotels, new any development, residential or otherwise, uh, as originally proposed, would not be able to use natural gas. That's obviously a disaster for restaurants. I think it's a real challenge for hotels, frankly, yeah. as well. But there, we have really been in the fold here, operating and engaging, building some grassroots. There, there is restaurant support across the political sp- spectrum. Right, Ann Arbor is a town where, you, where where the restaurant operators themselves often skew well left of center, but they find this ridiculous, and 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 are opposed to to incorporating restaurants into this. So. We're looking to at least exempt uh, this industry out to keep it thriving, to keep it viable. That's what, frankly, pays for a lot of the taxes that you're uh, experiencing uh, and benefiting from in the city of Ann Arbor. Don't don't kill the city and its tax base and its great restaurant scene. Frankly, because of this, maybe maybe well intended, but definitely would be disastrous for this industry policy. So, I think we've been successful in our efforts because it is slowing the process down. I think. The planning commission was supposed to make a vote on this in, uh, in March and is delayed. It is unclear whether they're going to have the votes in the next several months uh, to move this or not. But we're going to keep pushing, uh, working on a, a letter, making some of these points clear and getting it to city council, getting it to the planning commission with a host of restaurants in Ann Arbor all behind it. And, and more planned from there, uh, but it's clear that the restaurants are behind the, the this effort to try to at least get an exemption if they're going to make this decision in Arbor at least exempt some of some of the industries most negatively impacted. so
1: does that carve out include hotels as well?
2: it depends where the language ends up. Sometimes there's been some talk of carving out by floor, like literally the, Whoa. so if it's a mixed use development, you would, you would carve out the first couple floors, which might be great for the commercial side of, let's say the laundry side of a hotel. But now, you know, you are heating right? the, the upper echelons of your hotel differently. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that, I'm not sure that really fully works for, for, for hotels. Um, so we'll see, uh, you know, there's, there's talk about whether you do it for food service licenses as well. And that would incorporate anyone in the, in the, retail food space. So we'll stay tuned. But I think the early returns have been positive from, from our work there.
1: And the punchline is we're, we're covering it. We're making sure something happens. At to the it.
2: local, state and federal level, we got you.
1: All right. Anything else for fork's sake in the GA world that you wanted to hit on?
2: You know we're tracking predictive scheduling closely. It's something that targets this industry specifically and 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 its labor force specifically. there's built there's still legislation introduced, but we have not seen a hearing schedule, but that's something we're ready to move on quickly if it if it does.
1: okay, keep you posted. you get all right, so moving on to our guest for today's podcast. we are welcoming Melody Baton's Malloche from the Detroit News. Uh, I think we are in store for a very interesting conversation.
2: Great get by us.
1: Thanks to our talent buyer. Today, we welcome Melody Baton's Melosh. Melody is the restaurant critic and reporter for the Detroit News. She has covered entertainment for a daily paper since clubs like the Gold Dollar and Motor Lounge were around, and she was technically too young to even enter them. She's a musician who has played with a variety of rock groups throughout the past two decades and is also a former bar owner and talent buyer. After nearly 20 years as a staff member at the news covering all sorts of beats, including food and dining, she was named the paper's restaurant critic in 2019. She lives in Ferndale with her husband, musician Dave Malosh, and their Havanese dog, Olive. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me.
2: Melody, we are psyched that you are here. I am a big fan, big fan, and read a lot of what you put out. We're we're fascinated to hear your take on the Detroit scene, how you go about what you do, and then you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go in the wayback machine and talk a little bit about some early two thousands garage rock as well. But I think Emily's got first question. We're gonna get started.
1: Yeah. So when you started your career as a reporter back then, did you start in the entertainment sector, and then what brought you over to The restaurant critic side that you're in now.
0: Yeah, a lot of luck and being in the right place at the right time for sure. But I started when I was very young as an editorial assistant doing the entertainment calendar, the music calendar. And I had done some blogging before because this was late 90s, early 2000s. So I was doing a lot of entertainment blogging. And that's when you know, the news, I had something to show the news and they hired me as an EA. So I did a lot of band of the week type stories, a lot of a lot of listings. There was a huge focus on music listings, theater listings in the paper at that time. And that was a big kind of detail-oriented job. So I did that for many years and then started writing more about The bar scene and nightlife, local music, of course, you know, we had, I kind of was helping the music critic, the music columnist to kind of support her in in covering the scene because, you know, the White Stripes, Kid Rock, Eminem, Techno was all very, they're making a lot of news in, in the early 2000s. And then, you know, from the bar scene, it just kind of, you know, restaurants started making more news in like the late 2000s, I would say, but I always tried to help out with that. You know, beat as much as I could. But it was really when, you know, things started opening more. And we had a restaurant critic, Molly Abraham, but we really had use for more of the day to day covering restaurant news. So that's when I really started that, like more than 10 years ago.
1: Yeah. Cause I guess then that was how shows got announced that there was no social media, there was no communicating.
2: Don't age shame, Melody and well, I. I knew that. We, <laughs> we are contemporaries. And Melody, I used to read that section religiously in my early 20s all the time. And I'd come back down from the East Lansing area to to meet all my friends and go out in and around Detroit. I would always read that Detroit News section. So kudos to you for, for doing it because it was great.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it was you. That's what you did before you you went out. You had to pick up the Detroit News, maybe the Free Press, definitely the Metro Times, because that was sitting right there in the bar. And you're like looking at the ads and looking at the listings and, and seeing the spotlights, because, yeah, there was, you know, MySpace was still a couple of years away. and even That wasn't MySpace wasn't very helpful for that anyway.
1: Right. Yeah. And then you said late 2000s was we started to see that more openings and the resurgence of the restaurant scene. So how did you view that from your perspective in that transition at the news?
0: Yeah, I mean, just from, you know, being a reporter and, and seeing what needs to be covered, what what's making news, there was more and more cases of like a restaurant opening and there would be a lot of interest not just from readers but from editors like oh we should cover this this is you know like Michael Simon opening roast was a was a big one where people were like oh maybe something's happening it's like yeah something's something's happening (laughs) and like but to cover it without being like Detroit's back or like now we have restaurants like we always had restaurants there's always things to cover we've had a restaurant critic at the paper since the 60s, I think, late 60s, maybe, maybe early 70s. So there's always been restaurants that have been, you know, reviewed and covered, but it was just like trends, openings, chefs coming home was a big one that was like, you know, this guy is opening a restaurant. Well, who is this guy? Oh, he was, you know, he worked in these restaurants in the 90s. And then he went to New York for a couple years or Chicago. And now he's coming home to open this restaurant, like a lot of news like that, just it needed to be covered, and you know I jumped in and was was happy to do it. It was a really exciting time.
2: Yeah, you're right about the timing being perfect on that resurgence, that renaissance for Detroit. What do you attribute mostly to to the creation of that? I mean, was there a a creative genius that that sparked others to want to come? Was it the lower barrier of entry of Detroit to some other major markets? What What in your opinion caused there to be from there's always been? You're right. There's always been restaurants in Detroit, but that scene was not. Alive and kicking, and talked about nationally like it was in the early or the early teens. What what created that sort of surge, in in, in your opinion?
0: It's a good it's a good question, and I can only give my opinion on it. And I can put my business reporter hat on all I want, but I really, you know, it's hard it's hard to say. Like, was it? more of a Dan Gilbert development, like here's a space for you guys ready to move in. Or was it more about chefs coming home? Why were they coming home when opening restaurants? You know, was it Instagram? People got more into it, in food network. Did people get more into food and taking photos and being like, what are you doing tonight? Oh, we're going to this restaurant in Hazel Park or this restaurant in Corktown or this restaurant on the West side or whatever, you know, things like that. It, it could be any of those things. It's probably a mix of of all of those things.
2: Do you think the, the formal bankruptcy of the city created any sort of fresh start type thought process going forward or is is that just coincidental timing
0: I think it I think it must because it did coincide and I think that there was a push to you know have something in the city and to have people come you know back downtown as they said even though a lot of people never left downtown of course but I think as far as people opening restaurants they wanted to do it in the city, you know, talking to people across the country 20 years ago or, t- or 15 years ago, they don't really go, oh yeah, Detroit and it's restaurants, but now it's like, they kind of know and like, oh, I heard about that place. Don't you have a, like a, a cool restaurant there? It's like, yeah, there's a couple of them, but like mm-hmm. you hear more of a national like buzz about Detroit's dining scene that you didn't. And maybe that came after the very newsworthy national news of the bankruptcy of the city. But yeah, I think you could definitely consider that all of you know, a fresh start. And there's, I think there was just more of an effort put forward to make a place for restaurant owners, not just people kind of waltzing in into the city and buying the $1 houses that you see in the headlines, but also people that have been in the city, kind of offering them a chance and a place to grow a business.
2: Let's fast forward a little bit. So, uh well, we'll say this. I remember the, the all of the talk of is the renaissance dead? Is Detroit scene peaked in in 2019? So this was happening pre-pandemic, but that was still a high a much higher ceiling. The pandemic hit the city of Detroit really hard. Harder than uh, I think some other parts of the state uh because of the concentration of great restaurants, but not necessarily the concentration of of neighborhoods for all of these restaurants to continue to uh, enjoy them when everyone was a little more cooped into their own, into their own home. So, what is that? What do you think the scene looks like in the wake of the pandemic? And why do you think, yeah, my am I accurate in my in my assumption of of why the city was hit harder, the 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 restaurant scene in the city was hit harder because of the pandemic? And and what do we look like now coming out of it in the city?
0: You know, when the pandemic happened for for restaurants being completely closed, I had an awful lot to write about. I was on the phone constantly with people who were worried about. Not being able to feed their kids and losing their their lease and just like being so upset and terrified about the future because it was a shutdown and it was a week and then it was a couple more weeks and it was like, we really didn't know. And then in June, when everything opened up, everyone was so excited, but ripples, you know, we we shut down again, even in 2022, I saw restaurants that were, you know, everything's back. No one has to wear a mask. A lot of people are vaccinated. Everyone feels, you know, the concerts are happening. You know, things are quote unquote back. And people are, you know, a lot of businesses were saying, you know, actually we're not gonna make it. Even though this is over, it was too much of a hit or things have changed so much where we can't go on or I'm gonna retire. I think this is it for me. I made it through this now. I don't know what's next but i'm done you know you see a lot of people not not giving up at all but i think that just being like this is a good time for me to do something else and get out of this business or change the way i contribute to the business and right now in 2023 i will say as someone that watches the southeastern michigan dining scene as a whole very closely nothing surprises me as far as closures anywhere any restaurant could close whether it's busy or it's 50 years old or it opened 6 months ago i'm not surprised by any closings these days and largely because of the pandemic r- ripple whether it's the struggles with the staffing and and supply chains and rising costs to just people being burnt out and deciding to you know spend more time with their families and do something else
2: that's oh, so true we still deal with this every day over here at the association too of, of you think you're past dead and, and in a lot of people's minds if you're not in it it feels like you look at a restaurant it looks full things are things are great not realizing all of the other things right below the surface that might you might not see but but the level of inflation and what that's done to how they operate their restaurant whether they can stay, whether they have enough people to stay open enough hours to actually be profitable, these are all the challenges you don't necessarily see up front. Commodities, we talk pl- plenty about the increase of cost in commodities as well, or inability to get them, and all of those things you don't necessarily see as a guest day to day are, are always right under the surface. So you're right, we're still seeing closures now, and and you're right, it's 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 troubling to me that we're also not surprised because it's not something we were accustomed to seeing to the same kind of degree before.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. At the end of every month, and I've done this for about a year now, I've written uh, just a a quick write-up of here's what opened this month and here's what closed. And I think last month, it's a short month, but there was like 11 openings and eight closings. And usually the closings are like, you know, under five. And this was just a big one. So yeah, like I said, nothing surprises me and there's still challenges ahead. And I I think that diners just need to be cognizant of it. And I, th- I think a lot of them are. I think people that go to restaurants regularly uh, are in the know about what these the staff and the um, owners are going through.
2: Well, I appreciate you writing that article, frankly, every month. We reference it often as, as a way to justify quantity, you know, just in, in terms of quantifiably, you can see this article. It We're not just making these things up. <laughs> there are right. challenges that persist still. So I appreciate you putting a, a face to that story.
1: Absolutely. Sure. I have a... Uh, a couple questions here. So a little lighter of a topic, but when you're going to review a restaurant, um, I think you actually just recently covered the opening of Ford's Garage. But what are the one or one to three things you're looking for when you go to cover that restaurant review?
0: Sure. Well, before I even decide to review it, I try to be very diverse in who owns the restaurant, where it's located, the price point, and like what, you know, what kind of Uh, cuisine and service style it is. I really try to, you know, like I reviewed Albina this week and that's, it's $250 just to get a reservation for one person there. But then, you know, I might review a place that has, you know, $2 tacos, you know, next month, you know, try to be very diverse in that. So, but when I actually go to the place, you know, I, I like to take notes on what the Detroit news reader, what my reader and my audience Will be benefit from if they want to go to that restaurant, you know, and and take down information and and relay information that I think will give the diner the best experience and also the restaurant the best experience in serving the diner so everyone can have a good back and forth. Their, Their money is well spent, they know what to expect, they know maybe what to avoid. You know, not just what I think of the food, but like how to what to expect from the service style. The restaurant may look like it's casual, but you actually, you know, would benefit from. taking more time there and and giving yourself, you know, an hour and a half instead of 30 minutes there, things like that. Just how can it, how can what I'm writing benefit the reader? Because anyone can go to a restaurant's website and look at the menu and kind of go on Google and see what things look like. But I try to tell people what it's actually like to eat there.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You're representing your audience and also representing the the best case of the restaurant to the reader as well. Is it possible, moral, legal for you to have a favorite restaurant? I have many favorite
0: restaurants. I have a favorite pizza restaurant, a favorite Greek restaurant, favorite bagel restaurant. <laughs> um, so yes and no. But there's a couple, you know, there's there's places that if you read my stories, you can tell I'm a fan of. And then there's just places that just they're nearby. They're in my, and you know, they're downtown by the office or they're near my home. And it's just, I go there a lot. And my favorite restaurant is the restaurant I go to the most than you know, it's the salad bar in the guardian building because <laughs> that's where I usually am.
2: Uh, pe- right. People love extremes. So if, if, to the extent that you can share these stories, do you have sort of, do, do, were you ever blown away by experience when you were there on a professional basis for review that, that blew you out of the water so positively that it stood out from even all the other positive experiences you had? And then conversely, have you ever had something that was an absolute train wreck? And, and, and how do you deal with that? Knowing that, you have an operator who is, is, is nervous by what the outcome is. Maybe knows they absolutely blew it, but how do you, how do you balance those, (laughs) those things? Do you have any stories that fit that description?
0: Sure. I mean, any, I think anytime, okay, let's say, I've been doing restaurant reviews since night, 2019 minus, you know, when there was a pandemic, I didn't review restaurants when they were coming out because it just didn't seem fair. So I've done about 40 restaurant reviews, I'll say, and I've only given four stars, four times which is so that's pretty rare and that to me means like this is this is an amazing restaurant go go as soon as you can if you can afford it or tell your friends from out of town this is where they have to go like that's what that means to me and i'll say one of them in the last year or so was freya in the milwaukee junction area in detroit just right around the corner from new center you know just the the way you could see the chefs working the whole staff kind of was just flawless and orchestrated in the way they service the tables without even seeming like they were paying attention, like it was just very natural, but at the same time, like very cool and welcoming and the food was fantastic. And it was just a little bit different than, than some other restaurants, but, you know, um, Sandy Levine and, and chef Doug how have have been restaurant owners in the city before. So they knew what people were looking for. And it was just a really great experience that I was really excited to share with other people. Cause there were some details where it's like, here's what you need to know. And so it related that. And as far as bad reviews, I get asked this a lot. Unless there's a restaurant where people are just spending all kinds of money and just it's a bad experience and they really need to know, like, I, if I didn't like a restaurant, I probably would just leave it alone, especially if it was a small business that no one was really looking at anyway, because I don't think that's fair and I don't think that's particularly useful, except to have like a hot read, which is not really my style. But if like there was a, you know, a restaurant that people were, there was a lot of buzz and there was a high expectation and it wasn't good, I would, I would say so but so far um you know i've only been doing this a couple of years so far that hasn't been the case i haven't had to uh to put the hammer down on anyone's anyone's dream
1: <laughs> okay do you do we need to talk more about bands because i know that you have been a musician and justin really wanted to get into the the band scene of the early 2000s We
2: well, want to get to the essence of, of melody <laughs> <laughs> not let's listen. Let's, no, she's not just here to share her professional expertise related to our industry, although that is probably the primary reason you're here. The listeners also want to know what's what's driving you. What's underneath the surface of uh, of Melody when she comes into the restaurant to rate it and how better to describe it than the fact that you were part of the scene? What was the band that you were in, and what was its name?
0: Oh, and the, ok. so I've been in probably. Ten bands. Oh, um, well. Some of the better known ones in the early two thousands: Stroker Ace, Gorgor Girls, The Sirens, The Vamps. Those are probably the main ones. Right now, I'm in a band called Betty Cooper,
2: and still yeah. at it. I love it.
0: Yeah, still, oh yeah, still play, of course. But yeah, that's what kind of got me into restaurant writing was knowing, that's what got me at the Detroit News was I knew the bar scene I've been playing since, you know, I played the gold dollar one night and the next night came back and they wouldn't let me in because I was 19. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) and you know, things like that, just just always been a part of it. It was really cool to be, you know, on the ground and in the clubs when like, what they call the Detroit uh, Garage Rock revival was happening. Because, you know, we'd see the White Stripes at small clubs and then a couple years later there they were on TV and then snowball from there. And it was just it was really cool to be a part of that. I feel very fortunate, at, you know, without their success and the success of like the Detroit Cobras and a bunch of other bands, I probably never would have been able to tour Europe which I have done several times. And that informed the rest of my, you know, kind of global outlook. You know, I've had empanadas in Argentina because of rock and roll. I've had pommes frites in Belgium with with mayo because of rock and roll. You know, all these things kind of mix mix together.
1: I feel like we buried the lead on that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) <laughs> we 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 somehow spoke about the pandemic again and here we're just now getting to the fact that you, that uh you've traveled the world as a musician as a musician in 10 different bands and still going love it
0: yeah it's fun i like to play <laughs> not <laughs> you- as much as i used to but it's you know it was i was very fortunate that at the time a couple different bands you know go out and and uh when there was a high interest in detroit garage rock bands across the pond
2: i wonder if we Ben, if I've been to a show, you played it at some point in time. I we we would always follow the sites in the in the early two thousands. My buddy is in a band. I think it's still called False City, and and we would we played with uh, them or we went to go see them at all of these different locations. Some of the ones you've mentioned, frankly, already. So that's why I felt the kinship when I when I when I saw uh, I think this this conversation pop up on Twitter a few months ago.
0: Yeah, I mean the sites were. Are one of the greatest Detroit bands of that era. Their second album is, I still listen to it. It's a masterpiece. It's absolutely fantastic.
2: Me too. All these years later.
1: Yeah. You've been through a couple of revivals, it sounds like, with <laughs> the restaurant scene in Detroit and then garage bands. So very interesting. Do we want to get,
2: Let's get into the lightning, into round. The lightning we're gonna, round. Melody, we're going to let you get out of here, but we got some fun questions we always ask guests at the end, and we tailored them a little bit, just a tweak for you uh, to make sure we hit the Detroit restaurant scene. So Emily, you are up.
1: All right. What is your favorite style of pizza? Well, Detroit style, of course. It's an easy, so that was yeah, a softball. I do love a floppy.
0: Yeah, I like a floppy slice, but I think about Detroit style pizza all the time.
1: <laughs> yes. Detroit was just named number one place again for pizza, same as last year,
2: so... Take right. that, Chicago! Right, rightfully belongs right here. Yes.
1: Um, what's your go-to cocktail?
0: I would probably say it's not very creative, but I do like a old-fashioned uh, or Manhattan or anything, um, anything smoky, a whiskey-forward bourbon or Scotch. Love that.
2: What's your whiskey of choice then?
0: For bur- uh, you know bourbon, Old Forester. I've kind of been enjoying lately, and Scotch. Anything, anything peaty, funky, smoky log cabin-ish like the older the better the weirder the better
2: if it tastes like eating dirt you are all in
0: <laughs> i want yeah
2: please. i love it
1: um which detroit sports team will make the playoffs first
0: i don't know i do like the pistons <laughs> so i'll say the pistons <laughs> yeah i don't i i'm a very very peripheral very weak sports fanatic i am i am a fairweather fan for sure
2: I love that year, the playoffs. Fan.
0: I'm like, wait, where's the party? Let's go. But <laughs> preseason and all that, I'm like, wait, what's the what are we doing?
2: I spent the 2004 playoff run for the Pistons. I was down there working for the summer, and we'd go every night to the Berkeley Front to watch all of the, the Detroit Pistons games when they won the the championship yeah. that year. That was exciting. Yeah, I'm I was like,
0: watching Hamtramck that that year. I remember. Oh that yeah, sure.
2: It, like, it's insane to me to think about this now, but it's 2004. We were watching those on like 27 inch, not flat screen <laughs>
0: TVs. I know now there's a, there's TVs as big as the wall. <laughs> in
1: yes, <Wells> right. <laughs> what is your favorite venue in Detroit to see a show? It depends
0: on the show. I know it's supposed to be a lightning round, but if it's, if it's comedy, maybe Royal Oak music theater, if it's music, maybe state theater, magic stick. Uh, yeah, that's a tough one it depends on who it is and also if i have to drive there
1: or not
2: we listen we are not opposed to nuance on what's okay. on apple podcast that's a good answer i like all that
1: all right tough one american or lafayette Dooleys.
2: Dooleys. <laughs> right out of right field but but that is an insider choice
0: i love american and lafayette and it de- like it, it depends am i getting carry out maybe lafayette if i'm eating there american just cuz i feel like americans are you can you can actually you know, you don't need a knife and fork for American all the time. You know, it depends on how late it is, what the vibe is, but they're both great. They're both institutions.
2: Melody Batons, Malosh. I we appreciate you. We appreciate what you do. We are we are avid readers. We thank you for taking the time uh with us today on What's with the Pineapple podcast.
0: Thanks guys. I appreciate it. It was fun. All
2: right. Take care. <laughs>